I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider making a donation in any amount on our website at livewireradio.org. We're an independent production funded in large part by grants, foundations, and the generosity of strangely attractive listeners such as yourselves. Once again, that's livewireradio.org, and thanks so much for listening. So Brad and I are back together. Oh, fun. I'm so sorry. No, it's, it's good. We're happy. We're calling the whole thing a hiccup. Oh, good then. Uh, Dee Dee... I want to thank you for trying to help with all your advice, such as it was. Well, that's what friends are for. Yeah. It's, it's just that your ideas were... So perfect that I saved your marriage and you feel like you owe me your firstborn child? Oh, my gosh. No. No, actually not. What I mean is that know you... Know just what to say and read your mind and know what you're going to say before you say it? Actually, the opposite. Um, you tend to finish my sentences... More concisely and eloquently than you could ever hope to. I know, right? No. No, you don't. Like, when I tried to say that Brad sometimes doesn't appreciate me and he takes me for... A granite countertop with built-in cutting board and spice rack? Yikes. No. See, you you did it again. And last time when I said he takes me for, you said a ride in the Batmobile. See, neither of those sentences makes any kind of... Money on eBay, right? No, you got to know how to work an auction. Dee Dee. My advice to you would be to try... And listen. To the rhythm of the falling rain? Oh my gosh, Vaughn, you're so deep. No! Listen to the words that come out of people's mouths. Don't always try to finish the... In first place at the 2003 Miss Thailand pageant? I know. What was I thinking? Chalissa Boongskrong's rap totally had it locked. Wow. You know what? I want to try something, Dee Dee. Roses are red. Violence is no laughing matter, yet I find the Three Stooges hilarious. Uh Uh-huh. Two wrongs don't make... Love in a public place, unless the idea of getting caught is a turn-on, which it is, because I'm like that. Okay. A bird in the hand is worth... 200 bucks on eBay, minimum. Like I say, you got to know how to work the auction. All right. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, Pinky? Yes, but where are we going to find a one-armed Mexican wrestler in chocolate massage oil in this part of town? <laughs> hey, why'd you call me Pinky? That was a crazy non-sequitur. Uh huh. Sorry, I, I thought you were somebody else. Uh, come here. Why is your hand over my nose? You have to stop finishing my sentences. It's weird. It's perplexing. It's crazy. It's. It's. Livewire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. 
Are you thinking what we're thinking? If so, ew, what is wrong with you? It's Livewire! And now it's the host of Livewire who always knows the perfect way to end a sentence, period. Courtney Hameister! Thank you so much for coming out, you guys. We've got a really good show. Tonight is actually, I hope that you brought someone to cuddle with because tonight is just like a great date. We've got food and film and music. It's all lined up for you. And there are some mattresses up on stage (laughs) if you're at all but we'll talk about those later. Um, we do. We have a couple of foodies here tonight to discuss the latest trends in all things food. Mike Thielen and Karen Brooks are with us. Uh, yeah. And filmmaker Andy Bluebaugh is here to discuss his innovative, personal documentary hybrid, The Adults in the Room, which will be premiering next weekend. We're very excited about that. And our musical guest is a funky folk artist out of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Aaron McYone is here tonight. But before we get to all that, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Shelley McClendon, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as usual, poet Scott Poole is here with us. He's the author of The Chief Seats. If you have not seen the show before, what happens is, Scott, he sits in our audience, and in the course of just a single hour, the amount of time it took Dorothy Parker to drink 18 martinis, Scott writes a poem, and then he comes back, and he just he lets us know everything that we've all learned tonight. So uh, get writing, and welcome Mr. Scott Poole. And of course, we couldn't do any of it without our extraordinary house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. is here with us tonight, and he directed a highly personal documentary. Um, It's really a piece of memoir. It's about something that happened to him when he was 15. And I had to write a piece of memoir recently as well. I was asked to write about women and humor. And knowing that it would be published somewhere, it actually got me thinking about the consequences of telling our stories, people who write memoir. In Andy's film, there actually might be legal ramifications for someone in his story, My story just had personal ramifications. Uh, In it, I was trying to explain how, in the course of a relationship that I had one time, I actually managed to completely cease being funny. I started the relationship funny, I'm reasonably sure. You can't tell someone that you're funny, they have to decide for themselves. But I really, I feel like I was at the beginning, and he used to laugh at me at the beginning. I had a lot of dorky stuff that I did, but I had this one thing that I did... um, with my roommate in college, um, it was a very specific routine when we dropped something in our house. Whenever, whatever it was would hit the ground, there would be a pause, we'd throw our arms up in the air and yell as loud as we could, I'm okay! And it wasn't, that's not high comedy. It's not hilarious, right? (laughs) But 
whoever else happened to be in the house would generally get a kick out of it. And so eventually, unfortunately, this just became a habit for me. Like now, I can't drop anything ever without informing whoever happens to be around me, my mother, my coworkers, the meat guy at Fred Meyer, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> and, um, and I did it at this guy's house too. And the first couple times he just sort of nodded and said, good to know. And... <laughs> But the third time, I had dropped a metal pot in his kitchen, um, and he was there, and there was, you know, the pause, I'm okay! And uh, there was just this long sigh, and he said, uh, do you have to say that every single time you drop something? It's, it's not like I think you've hurt yourself whenever I hear something hit the ground. It's ridiculous. And... It, it is ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. That's the point. And in my head, I'm going to look at you. It was fun. And you're sucking all the fun out of it with your comedy suckers. <laughs> you know? It definitely used to be funny. Um, but what happened was I, I stopped joking around him. I stopped doing that. And then I stopped joking around him at all because I was trying to be sexy. And it's actually quite hard to be funny and sexy at the same time, which is... Isn't it? I mean, it's... Funny people are sexy, but not while they're being funny, which is actually what I, what, what I wrote this essay about. But now I've said this thing, right? I've said it in writing, and this person that I was in the relationship now will know the power that I allowed him to have over me in a way I never would have expressed when we were actually together. I just think memoir creates an almost unnaturally open, one-sided conversation. And it may be a conversation that may or may not create a two-sided one. Uh, we can ask Andy about what happened with his film later. As for me, I'm just going to lie to the person involved and say, it's in a cracked magazine. Uh, uh, it's from two years ago. You'll, you'll have trouble finding it. Um, <laughs> but we'll ask Andy later about uh, the conversation that his, that his film has started. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we need to get to our fabulous first musical guest. Uh, she has produced seven records and two EPs in the course of just the last 10 years. She's done this while averaging about 200 shows a year, working as a session player on vocals, piano, bass, and guitar tracks on other people's records. She is here to perform songs from her newest record, Hundreds of Lions. Please welcome Erin McKeown to Livewire. Perched on the mill house floor, four and twenty blackbirds perched on the mill house floor, watching a pair of blackbirds, a pair of blackbirds more. Four and twenty blackbirds perched on the mill house floor. Said one blackbird to the other, "You must be my queen." One black.
so great to be here. That was wonderful. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about, you studied ornithology at Brown University, your 2005 record. <laughs> yeah. Brown fans or, or bird fans. We don't know. We don't know. Could be both. Um, and your 2000 album was titled, We Will Become Like Birds. You just sang 4 and 20 Blackbirds. Where did this, uh, what triggered your interest in birds? 
Yeah, that song Blackbirds is a song that I wrote uh, when I was in college, and uh, it was on the first record that I ever did called Distillation, which is uh, turning 10 this year, so um, we thought we'd start out with Blackbirds. But um, yeah, I grew up in Virginia, and I grew up um, going to nerd kids science camps, and um, when it was time to go to college, I thought that's what I would do. And um, you know, I, I must correct the bio to say that I was an ornithologist for about six weeks at school, and then music really took hold. And uh, I ended up with a degree in uh, something called ethnomusicology. Right, so you moved on from birds to music. What, was, what made you make that shift? Um, I think, you know, for me, like, college was the time where, you know, it's the first time that your time is your own, and um, sort of freed from the restriction of you must get A, B, and C grades or, you know, do this with your life. I, music just pulled me, I, you know. I really like uh, getting to travel around. I really like playing for people. And so I basically tried to find a way to get a degree in something I was doing anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. That's smart. Something that you actually enjoy. How weird of you. <laughs> How odd. Uh, I wanted to also ask you about writing a song with, with Rachel Maddow over oh. text message. Yeah, this is a good story. Um, I, I, now I live in Western Massachusetts. And Rachel Maddow was uh, our morning DJ for many years on the local radio station. So she and I knew of each other and, I, uh, and for years, and I think we were sort of mutually uh, uh, intimidated and shy. And then when she got her um, Air America show, I was on it a couple of times, and I learned very quickly that I was, I was going to keep up with her. I really needed to do a lot of reading before I was on her show, and I needed to... Um, take careful positions because she was just going to run circles around me. She's like an encyclopedia. Oh, it was amazing. It's amazing. And inspiring, too, actually. She really is someone who inspired me to put more activism into my career, um, which is something that's very, very important to me now. Yeah. But uh, we were, ironically, um, uh, I met Ira Glass randomly in Alaska in a diner, and uh, <laughs> which I guess is the best way to meet Ira Glass. And, um, and so then he was doing, he was organizing a benefit for the American Bird Conservancy uh, in the wake of the BP oil spill. And, um, and so he asked, you know, who can you call to, uh, to bring in the big guns? And, uh, and I thought, well, I'll try Rachel. Try Rachel. And uh, she was totally down with it, but it happened to be the week that, oh, it was the, uh, you know, fifth anniversary of Katrina, and oh, it's combat operations and in Iraq. Oh, I'm really busy. So we ended up texting back and forth. And uh, that was the best I was going to get. But it was great because she texted me some words that she liked. She mm-hmm. texted me some ideas. Um, and then I sort of went from there, you know, because she was in the Gulf the first part of the week. And then she was in Baghdad the second part of the week. What do they have in common? Oil. Let's talk about oil and how it's connecting all these things that are happening in our world right now. Can you uh, sing a couple lines from the song that you might remember that, that Rachel wrote? Well, one of the things that Rachel told me is that she really liked the sound of the word Plaquemines, which is the name of one of the parishes around New Orleans. So uh, I made a chorus that says, From Baghdad to the bio, in the desert all Plaquemines. For every gallon of oil spilled, I want to know where the payoff is. So Plaquemines payoff is. Nice! <laughs> that is a Smarty Pants song, and I like it. Well, you're going to come back and you're going to sing another song for us toward the end of the show tonight. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you later. Aaron McYone, everybody. Again, I want to thank you all for taking time out of your Sunday morning for this conference call. Uh, Okay, last order of business is the action plan. Kathy. 
Uh, sure, Mr. Gibb. The Seattle team and I will work on communicating the margin shift to the stakeholders. Good. I want them on board. Ted? I'm taking charge of the rollout down at the Florida location. Gonna get her done. <laughs> okay, Ted, you do that. Denise, home office. I'm going to expedite the paperwork and close down the job site. All right, well, that sounds like a plan, gang. I, I think we're done. Uh, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Who, no, who did that? Well, it was I, was, I've been yeah, at my desk the whole time. Have a bathroom Which one here. of you has been on the toilet this whole time? I sure, would not do I that. Sure you I don't even know what a bathroom well, looks like. I'll tell you what, it's disgusting. And it's tainted this entire conference call. <laughs> Come on, Denise, fess up. What, Ted? You're going to make me say it? You're going to make me say it, fine. She's in the bathroom every ten minutes because she's pregnant. <gasps> what? That is nobody's business. I'm in HR. Everybody's business is my business. <laughs> Fine, it's true, but don't spread it around because I haven't finished composing my announcement yet. But that doesn't prove it was me. Kathy's the one with the motive, the opportunity, and the means. Me? Have you guys ever used the bathrooms in the Seattle office? It's like somebody put a toilet in the lobby of the Four Seasons. Mm -hmm. If I worked there, I would never leave the john. There's a Starbucks in the bathroom. (laughs) It's not a Starbucks. It's just an espresso machine. This is how rumors get spread, prego. Whoa, easy, Kathy. Don't easy me. Don't easy Kathy me, Mr. Gibbs. Anyway, that could have been your flush, too. It's true, sir. I think it was. It might have been. Thin ice, Kathy. Whoever smelt it, dealt it, Mr. Gibbs. All right, nobody smelt it, Ted. We're all on the phone. Plus, I, I didn't get to be senior VP of whatever I am by making a boom boom during a meeting. I can separate business from pleasure, Ted. He, he can. I've seen him he do is it. Good at that. Sure, I might be on my couch wearing nothing but a banana hammock and a cowboy hat. But until this call is over, my Bloody Mary is out of reach and my PS3 game is safely on pause. Oh, wait. What was it Denise said right before the flush? She was going to expedite the paperwork and close down the job site. Textbook euphemisms for bathroom activity. Grow up, Ted. You're the one who said you were about to do the rollout. Right? In the Florida location, which is down south, if you know what I mean. Well, let's not forget Kathy's action plan. To communicate the margin shift to the stakeholders? Yeah, that doesn't sound like anything, sorry. Uh, that's true. Yeah, right. it doesn't. All right, there's only one way to solve this mystery. Through song. What? What? Everyone knows that your singing voice sounds best in the acoustics of a bathroom. Whoever sings the most beautifully must be in a lavatory, and therefore is the guilty... Potty. Oh, uh, my God. Really? really? I'm sorry, it was really? there. Everyone sing a few bars of, oh, I don't know, I Dreamed a Dream from Les Mis. I Dreamed a Dream. dream. Not, not all at once. Kathy, you go first. <clears throat> I dreamed a dream of time gone by. Okay, pretty good. Ted? Thank you. When hope was high and life was living. Good, not great. Uh. Denise? I dream that love would never die. I dream that God would be forgiving. Oh my God, that was beautiful. She's got the voice of an angel. Denise, that was lovely. You are really on the toilet, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Slack, I'm knocked up. My bladder always feels like it's sitting in the window seat next to Kevin Smith on a Southwest Airlines flight. I'm very disappointed in you, Denise. I... Oh, there you are.
you are, honey. Get off the toilet already. We're going to be late for brunch. Darn it, Gloria. I'm on the phone. On the commode. What is the matter with you? Let's go. Well, uh, don't know what to say. This is, this is embarrassing. I, uh, I really am at a loss. Uh, In light of what we just heard, sir, I have something to share myself. Ted! You too? So, Kathy, you're the only one not on the... Oh, Kathy. You know what, team? All the hypocrisy and accusations aside, this has been the most productive conference call we've ever had. That's That's actually very true. I feel feel so true. What do you say we do it again next week? Works for me. Same time? Yeah, and uh, same place. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. With music, conversation, and comedy, we stimulate every part of your brain, even your subconscious, which is going to pay you back tonight with another naked in high school physics dream. You're welcome. Coming up, foodies Mike Thielen and Karen Brooks, filmmaker Andy Bluebaugh, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Wire. Next on the show, we have got two people who have been steeped in food culture for a long time. Mike Thielen is the owner of Bolted Services. It's a culinary consulting and branding firm. He's overseen projects for Eater.com, Whole Foods, the Oregon Wine Board, and more, as well as appearing regularly on the Cooking Channel and writing for publications like USA Today. Karen Brooks is the restaurant critic for Portland Monthly and has defined food writing in Portland for over 20 years. As Portland has become one of the country's most important food cities, she's been there reporting, putting the DIY food movement at the center of her work. It's the subject of her eighth book, The Mighty Gastropolis, due in 2012 from Chronicle Books. Please welcome Mike Thielen and Karen Brooks to Livewire. Give it up for Karen Brooks. And Mike Thielen. Okay, before we start this interview, we have one request. We have a live anonymous food critic in the house, so we ask not to take photos because your future meals will depend on it. 
So, Karen, you've been writing about food since you dropped out of school to write a vegetarian cookbook <laughs> some two decades ago, and you've seen trends come and go. You've seen the white tablecloths be whisked away. Karen, how have the dialogues with food changed, and what are you seeing now? Well, I think the old ways of dining are really being challenged to the core, and not just because of the the economic meltdown. It's sort of echoing larger cultural shifts, and we have... There's always been waves of food for years and years, but in the last five years, we've seen this new generation of food renegades who are building new, completely new models for right. food. What are the new models? Well, some of the new things, food carts are really huge. Affordability <laughs> is very in. Artisan everything. And so is in-your-face cooking. I, I had a fish dish the other night, a butterfish. It was glazed with bone marrow butter. It's like, how you like my cooking now? (laughs) (laughs) So obviously food carts are the big thing. I mean, and a lot of other things that are very DIY, you don't need to go to the white tablecloth restaurants anymore to have those really unique dining experiences, do you? No, and I mean, there's a new, it's the democratization of food. There's a new equality, and I think, and everybody is in it. There's a leveling of the playing field so that the food cart chef, if they're really good, is you know sort of given the same kind of respect as a top chef. Everyone can afford eating at the food carts. And it's, it's kind of like it's the new punk rock food movement. How do we feel about that? <laughs> How many people here eat at food carts? Yeah. There you go. The other thing that's really interesting is sort of the shift in food and, and, and the destinations, you, you know, where we go to eat food. Food destinations used to be just the very elite cosmopolitan cities, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, the New Orleans, the Chicago's. And now the new food stars are places like the two Portland's, Austin, Texas, Brooklyn, New York. What happened? Well, I, I, the movement, the first inklings I had that something really different was changing came after 9-11. And I noticed it in Portland, Oregon, but it was also happening in France where you saw a lot of young Turks just walking away from the white tablecloth world, the sense of don't want to be chasing star reviews any longer. And a sense um, of people, everybody was reevaluating what are our values, what's touching our soul, and the sense of wanting to create places that were closer to the bone, you know, more, more alive, more responding to the moment. So that was part of it, but I think also in the cities that you're mentioning, the new food destination, it's also a story about real estate. Because in the larger cities, a lot of young entrepreneurs and cooks, they're locked out of their dreams because they don't have access to the real estate. And in the cities that are thriving, chefs can beach up in these little storefronts in kind of sketchy neighborhoods and watch those neighborhoods grow just like artists have always done. And they'll find an audience willing kind of to eat up the, you know, anything that goes as long as it's good and passionate, even if it's on hand-me-down with hand-me-down dishes. Now, so anytime you have a movement, that there's a blowback. And, you know, around the, the country, this particular to food carts, you've seen a blowback from different cities. What should cities not do to prevent food carts from happening? Because I know a lot of cities have fought that. Well, I guess what I, I feel like what cities should do is they should be... They should be opening doors to young entrepreneurs and not, not be roadblocks. I mean, why is Portland the food capital in the country? Well, in part because we have a very unusual ally here 
in, in City Hall. And in other cities, they look at it like the Che Gourmets are coming, you know, squash the insurgents, rather than seeing that the people are creating intentional communities and it's good for everybody in the neighborhoods. Now, Karen, we just collaborated on this magazine together um, that everyone has a copy of. Tell us about Portland Monthly 2010 Restaurant Guide. Tell us about the evolution of the revolution, not only in Portland, but how that relates to the dialogue across the entire country and world. Well, I think we're continuing to see restaurants put push culture in new directions. And I know both of us, for example, were very taken with Castagna, where uh, Chef Matt Leitner is trained at the foodie the big foodie think tanks in the world, and yet he's doing very avant-garde cooking in a residential neighborhood storefront to somebody like Andy Ricker, who is bringing it the Whiskey Soda Lounge. He's, you know, 20 years of, you know, obsessive backpacking and stall hopping to recreate uh, Asian drinking food in a little Asian surf bar. So people are just exploring these obsessive passions in very accessible, affordable ways. And it's changing the world and changing the cities. Sometimes they're barely even restaurants. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Mike Phelan and Karen. That was Mike Phelan and Karen Brooks. Our food segment was brought to you tonight by Whole Foods, who remind you that the holidays are a time for leftovers, relatives, and of course, leftover relatives. You've made the small talk, finished off the liquor, and are now more glazed over than an Easter ham. If you could just get them all out of the house. Well, Whole Foods Market wants to help. Their new Flash Kitchen Mobile Cooking School will be at Bridgeport Village in Tualatin, Oregon on November 26th. So pick up some cooking skills while you drop off your mother-in-law. Win-win. Thanks, Whole Foods. Scientists recently announced that a number of chemicals in the brains of cockroaches have been found to kill viruses like multidrug-resistant Staphylococcus and are continuing their research in an effort to find a vaccine. Here to comment from the kitchen at that sketchy deli on 4th Street, Munzee the Cockroach. You really did it this time, didn't you? You just couldn't let it lie. Let me tell you something, you lousy bastards. We've been around a long time, way longer than you humans. But when you came on the scene, there was an unspoken compromise. We get to eat the scraps you don't clean up. You get to whack us with a newspaper or a shoe or something. We thought that was the deal. But now? Now you're messing around with our freaking brains? (laughs) That just ain't right. Do you know how, like, uh, sadistic that sounds? Makes me sick to my stomach to think about what you guys are doing, and I'm a cockroach. All because we got this chemical in our brains that might help cure some disease. Newsflash, idiot, you're going to die. I don't know when. I don't know how. But get that through your thick mama Luke head. If it ain't this staff or what's it, it's going to be something else. Next thing you know, these scientists are going to say they can cure cancer by taking my balls. Forget about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is how it's going to go down. You're going to release any of my brothers or sisters. You got locked up in some lab somewhere waiting for the Hannibal Lichter business. And you do that, we'll go back to the old days of you stepping on us in the kitchen. You don't, hey, the deal's off. 
You think long and hard about what that might mean, but trust me, Bozo, you ain't going to like it. We will be everywhere. Your daughter's wedding? Normally we stay away. We got class. We will invade that place like NASCAR fans at a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> I'll say, how about that fancy uh, restaurant? You like to go for a fancy dinner? Uh-uh. I hope you like seeing my cousin Bernie in your ravioli. Your Aunt Bibi's funeral? We'll drop from the rafters during the eulogy. Oh, by the way, your Aunt Bibi died. Condolences. Look at me so you know I'm serious. We will leave no event uncockroached. And another thing, we're in the same Teamster union as the rats. You can maybe raid us, but our rat brothers in solidarity will make your daughter's bar mitzvah look like that scene from Indiana frickin' Jones. I'll give you a couple minutes to decide, then my crew and I gotta know. When you got an answer, drop a piece of bologna on the floor and turn off the lights. I'll come to you. I appreciate it. Muncie the Cockroach, as played by Sean McGrath. Our next guest has been making films since he was a teenager. He's directed four award-winning shorts over the past eight years and many more. His films have screened at over 100 film festivals worldwide, including Sundance, Edinburgh, New York, and Barcelona. His latest film is a feature, the experimental documentary hybrid, The Adults in the Room, wherein he explores a relationship he had as a teen with an older man by producing a narrative film about it within the documentary film. It's not easy to explain. Please welcome Andy Bluebaugh to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, Andy. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Um, so you do, as I said, you always explore these larger issues through your own personal experience. What is it about doing that that works so well for you? Uh, you know, I think for me it really came from the fact that that was the easiest thing to do. I started making films when I was around 16 years old and um, started doing this type of filmmaking in my early 20s with very few resources and uh, not a lot of time. I was working in an office and my own response to things was the most readily available resource, kind of a constantly renewable resource that could always be tapped into. And um, uh, that's how that started and it became a very useful tool. People seem to like it. What were some of those first films that you made? Well, the first film that I was really a personal film was a, a film about my mother who died when I was fairly young. And um, uh, I had received a camera that my father had sent me that had always been the camera that had been used to take our family pictures. And there was still a roll of film inside. And I obsessed for a while about uh, what might be on that roll of film. I, thought, I found that to be a very interesting story, you know, this could be the last images of my mother that ever existed, it could be nothing, um, and I obsessed with that for a while, trying to turn that into a narrative until someone said, just, just say it, just say that you are, are, it has been months and you have not taken this film in to be, to be processed because you're afraid, and uh, that ended up being the first kind of personal work that I did and laid the groundwork for the way that I approach um, talking about things that are uh, universal through the lens of my own experience. 
Well, and this looks to me to be your most personal film. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh, I know it's somewhat difficult to give a synopsis of it, but can you give the audience a quick synopsis of what this film is? Sure. It's, uh, the, it's called The Adults in the Room, and I, I very much do think of it as a film about adulthood and the question of what metric we use to measure adulthood. But in brief, I was in a, uh, a relationship, a sexual relationship with an older man when I was uh, 15 years old, and uh, I am now, well, now I am 30. I was making the film as, a, as I was approaching the age of 30 and thinking about what it meant to be the age that this man was when this relationship began, and also the fact that I now teach. I, I teach uh, 15 and 16-year-olds almost every day. And uh, the film is definitely not a film about abuse or, um, or any of the kind of sticky issues of ethics around uh, sex between adults and, and minors, but is more a rumination on uh, what it means to be an adult and how we decide that we've arrived there, if we ever decide that we've arrived there. What has teaching those kids who are the age that you were at the time, how has that changed the way that you see the relationship that you had with this man? Well, you know, it's, it's a very... Um, didn't we all think that we were all grown up at 15? Didn't we all think we were ready to, to uh, take on the world? And, and of course, you, you get to true adulthood and realize that uh, there's no way. That, that, that's, that's a little kid. A 15-year-old is just seems like this very little kid to me. And so in, in that way, I don't think that's a realization that is unique to me or unique to my experience. We all look back and realize we were just too little then. But... Um, you know, through the, the lens of my experience, it definitely has lent an odd, uh, an odd perspective to it as I look at my students and um, think, well, that, that, that was me. Yeah. I think we have a clip of the film. Jeff, can you play the clip? Paradox is often the best person for a young teenager to be involved with sexually is the kind of adult who wouldn't be involved with a teenager sexually. How do you want Peter to feel? I don't know. I was 15 years old. You realize that that's a child, right? I think what upset you about the relationship was not that you were younger and that he victimized you, but that he broke up with you first. I'll be honest with you. I think this is a lot weaker than the other part. And you take it and, and go possibly a little too far with it. My biggest concern is what's the limits of interaction between my character Peter and the 16-year-old. We're very aware of the territory that we're going into and we're trying to be very sensitive about it. That, when you heard someone say, I'm, I'm interested in knowing what, what the limits are, that was an extremely interesting moment in the film uh, when they were casting the character of the older man and the actor asked Andy what, how far they were going to go as actors and how young the kid was going to be that was going to play Andy. What was that experience like for you, watching this happen, directing an older man to kiss a 16-year-old yeah. kid? How uncomfortable was that for you? And I realized that I didn't actually maybe adequately explain the fact that the film is uh, kind of half narrative and half documentary. I, d I attempted to write a story, just a straight narrative story. Well, not straight, but a conventional, <laughs> a conventional narrative about this experience. And it became clear that that was only half the story. It really 
an audience really needed to know where I ended up, where I landed um, from the experience. So the film takes the, uh, is half that narrative that we created and then also half the experience of making that film and, and the man uh, that I've become since. So it was very strange. I mean, one of the big realizations was that although I think of myself as being maybe a more upstanding or a more reasonable man than, uh, than Peter uh, was. And Peter was the man that you had the relationship Peter with. Peter was, was that man. Um, because I, I don't think that I would put a 15-year-old in that situation. At some point I realized I am asking a 15-year-old to kiss a 30-year-old for ultimately my own gain, not, not a sexual gain. And these are two very much heterosexual men that are, are uh, doing this to be in a film. But the bottom line is it's a 15-year-old that very well may be going through with this to please me. And uh, that was a very, very strange realization that this is all uh, much murkier than I thought. Did it? Did watching that bring up anything in you, just in terms of your own experience, or seeing it played out in that way? Did it change at all the way that you remember things? Um, I, I, I don't think so, except in th- thinking that there's actually a scene in the film where I, I discuss watching these two actors rehearse with a, with an actor, because I'm not used to working with actors. My my films usually just have me in them, and uh, I discussed it with him wondering, have I pushed this too far? At what point is the responsibility mine to say, stop, I, 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 don't, I don't know that this should be going on. And I realized that I was waiting for someone else to say that. And uh, <laughs> there's no one else there, which is kind of where the title comes from when uh, we're examining these dynamics and also recreating them. Who is gonna be the adult in the room? And, and I don't have an answer for that necessarily. Well, and, and we talked a little bit earlier about the consequences of, of a memoir and the fact that for, for you, there may be actually legal con- consequences for the man that you were in the relationship with. How did you navigate that with him? Well, uh, all, all names and, and facts have all been changed. I've, I've respected his anonymity throughout this entire process. So I've tried to keep this narrative as far from him as possible uh, without compromising the story itself. So, um, you know, at this point I have no desire to, uh, this is not a revenge story. I don't think that necessarily any wrong really occurred. It's just a story that I'm interested in in telling. So uh, I've tried to protect him as much as possible. Has he seen the film? Uh, he's been sent the film. I, but I, you haven't heard from him? Uh, no. That's, that's, uh, I, th- I think that this film is really the end of that story. Well, that's, uh, we, had, we had Don Miller, the author Don Miller, on, and he, he wrote a book about the fact that he had to look at his life as a story. Yeah. And he was forced to do that because he was writing a film about it. And that it really shifted the way that that he thought about his life and it actually made him change a lot of things about the way that he did things. I spent an hour on hold on talk out 
uh, think out loud trying to talk to him. <laughs> oh, really? He was, he's, yeah, he, he's fascinating. It is, um, yeah. And I know that you don't do this for catharsis, mm-hmm. but it did feel like at the end of the film that you had changed your life by making this film. You'd, you'd sort of closed the book on this for yourself. Well, there is something interesting about the 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 screenplay structure or the, the three-act structure, and once you start to read enough screenplays and also try to write screenplays, you start to ask yourself, is this my lowest point? Is this where the hero will come back out from, <laughs> from the depths? And, and is this my, my final decision? And, and that made it into the film as well. Um, and I don't know if that I've necessarily changed my life because of the film, but looking at my life through the, through the structure of filmmaking has definitely, definitely given me a, a tool to understand that narrative a little better. Yeah. Um, well, it's a wonderful film, and how can people find out more information about it or where, the, where they might be able to see it in their town? I'm easy to find. Andy Bluebaugh, There's there are no others. Just Google me. <laughs> you can also go to the adults in, the adults in the room movie.com, andybluebaugh.com. I'm easy to find. And Bluebaugh is B-L-U-B-A-U-G-H. Thank you so much for joining us Thank tonight. You. Andy Bluebaugh, everybody. <laughs> That was filmmaker Andy Bluebaugh, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get your weekly dose of variety delivered to you quietly in the middle of the night. Like milk in the olden days. Unless you're lactose intolerant. In which case, you should really just come up with another analogy. If you live in the Portland area, come to our next live show on December 4th with guests, comedy writers, and authors of Our Bodies, Our Junk, Todd Levin and Scott Jacobson. Music from Laura Veers and Mimicking Birds and others. Visit LiveWireRadio.org for more information. You're listening to LiveWire Radio. With music, conversation, and laughs, it's like a great date, but without the initial awkwardness and constant internal dialogue about whether or not you're going to end up doing it. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Aaron McYone.
we do and the things we let Between the tide and the cigarettes All the cups we cannot sip Between our legs, across our lips Don't go
now, as promised, the man who's been toiling away for this entire hour while we've been laughing and playing. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I've learned tonight that I want to learn more. Say the sum total of my current knowledge can be roughly represented by a bottle of chocolate-flavored massage oil once owned by a one-armed Mexican wrestler. I want more knowledge than that. Say the sum total of my current knowledge is a bottle of massage oil spilled all over the floor with, say, two naked wood nymphs slipping around in it, yelling, I'm okay, I'm okay, over and over again. That could be the sum total of my knowledge. You don't know. No, wait, I need four wood nymphs, and one can play super dangerous Aaron McKeown guitar while they all ride on the back of a caterpillar. And the caterpillar's right legs are going left, and the left legs are going right. Fuzz and chocolate and joy are in the air. The full sum of my knowledge is 50 chocolate-scented legs fly in every direction. It's four and 20 blackbirds flying up from the pile. Some of my knowledge flying away forever, and I don't even care. Say the sum total of my knowledge is a caterpillar slipping on chocolate massage oil, watching the blackbirds fly, waiting for its own moment to sky with four wood nymphs. Heads on either side, having a conference call with every historical figure at the same time while eating fish soaked in bone marrow butter and serving fish soaked in bone marrow butter from the back of a caterpillar that they've turned into a food cart while blowing their noses with white tablecloths because it's a punk rock food cart. I still want more knowledge. I want the sum total of my knowledge to be represented by four nymphs riding on the back of a punk rock caterpillar serving bone marrow butter covered fish while simultaneously fighting off a mob boss cockroach with a lobotomy wearing a hospital gown brandishing a handgun with a wild look in its eyes who wants to invade the food cart of the sum total of my knowledge. (laughs) The sum total of my knowledge will not bend. It will fight off this lobotomized cockroach with a broken bedpan with my caterpillar and my wood nymphs, even if it's slipping all over the chocolate massage oil sense of itself. (laughs) I learned tonight that if this represents the sum total of my knowledge, and if I want to go beyond that and learn more, I better first quickly figure out what the hell I'm talking about. (laughs) Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for coming out. Thanks to our guests tonight, Mike Phelan, Karen Brooks, Andy Bluebaugh, and Aaron McKeown. The Mutton Chops were Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, the Falcon Art Community, Leica, and Willamette Week. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as You Fine People. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeff Simmons. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. 
The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, Shelley McClendon of The Liberators, and Siren of Sound Pachanowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management and lighting by Drew Flint. Theme by Courtney Mondrelli and Ralph Hutley. Craft services by Whole Foods Market. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgam Ocean. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes. Watch for me on this Wednesday's Maury. Am I the father? You'll see. But here's a hint. I kick a chair and storm off stage. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 